postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here. Welcome back to the Story Church podcast. This is Padanar season five. I'm super stoked because in this season, I'm actually going to touch on a very controversial and uncomfortable topic for many Adventists. But it's a topic that I have to touch on because it is symptomatic of deeper issues in our church that severely impact our missional effectiveness in just about every way imaginable, uh, but especially in post-church context. Uh, and what I'm talking about is the topic of music and worship. Now, again, on the surface, that might seem like a kind of superficial issue to explore, but I want to take this season to explore it because, as mentioned before, our traditional approach to music as Adventists is symptomatic of deeper, more cultural and systemic issues that damage our ability to engage secular culture effectively. Uh, and that's what I want to explore. And that's a big task. And so I am happy to announce that I am not alone. I am joined by a phenomenal musician and uh, a musician not only in, in, the, in the sense that he plays music himself, but is also deeply passionate in supporting other musicians. Maxwell Aka, welcome, uh, welcome to, the, to the podcast, bro. It's good to have you here. Thanks, dude. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me with this. Oh man, yeah. I I'm 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 so excited about this uh, about what we're about to explore. Uh, just a, maybe over a year ago, you started filming a series um, on your channel, which uh, which you can uh, please feel free to just put it on blast. Um, oh, yeah. You started filming a series on your channel called Reframing Adventist Worship or Reframe Adventist Worship, and uh, I got to see a few of those episodes. Haven't finished it yet because of like COVID and stuff has gotten in the way, but I, I you are planning on finishing it, so we'll we'll put some Absolutely. links up for that. Um, and I saw a few of those, and I was like, wow. I have never heard this topic addressed with so much beauty and depth. But before we get to that, um, I want to just pause and I want to look at Max Aka, the human. So, um, sure bro, thing. tell us tell us a little bit about yourself, or as I usually ask, um, tell us about the legend of Max. <laughs> the legend of Max. Well, everything was fine until the Fire Nation attacked, but no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess my background, especially as it pertains to this conversation, uh, like I grew up obviously, you know, in church and, you know, music was always deeply intertwined with like my faith life, my, my faith practice, whether on, on my own or with my family. So, you know, I grew up in children's choir. Um, that was like my first like big musical experience was being in the children's choir at church. But like I was I was doing piano lessons for a long time as a kid, guitar lessons for many years, as well as playing uh, trombone in like the high school band uh, was in jazz band for a little bit. But it was yeah, I was in that for a little bit, did some musical theater um, again, all through school. Um, 
after high school. I, I mean, interestingly, I didn't study music in university. Like I considered it strongly, but I ended up going into theology instead, right? So uh, just shortly after high school, I had done uh, about a year of internship at a music studio in Toronto, where I'm from. And so I was, you know, that was my introduction to more the production and recording side of music, um, which I still remain passionate about to this day. Um, you know, if people could see my setup, you'd see a lot of speakers and cables and uh, <laughs> my piano was literally like right in front of me and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a enduring passion, but uh, as far as like my, my professional training goes, um, my undergraduate years, I actually spent at a school called Tyndale University, also in Toronto. Um, my, my introduction to like formal theological studies was done outside of Adventism. And a significant reason for that was because I was like this young budding musician. I was playing in bands. I was doing all kinds of stuff with music. And I was also uh, coming into a very uh last generation leaning community within adventism um this was like mid to late 2000s right around the the spike of like you know my friends around me in the church getting into you know what gyc was like at the time and like you know other more conservative leaning movements within adventism um around that time david gates stayed at my house one time like the, wow the, the, this was the <laughs> yeah this was the the kind of circle i was rolling in so for me as like a budding musician as a admittedly passionate uh i mean i i love all forms of music give or take a couple things that might or might not be country um, like I, I love music of all sorts. Right. And I've participated, I've been like a guitarist in like gospel music for a long time. I don't mean like white people's like country gospel music. I mean like the black church, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. and I've been in like involved in hip hop and R and B, but like at my core, I'm a metal guy, but yeah. uh, be, being involved in that kind of music and also being like neck deep in a very conservative form of Adventism uh, created a lot of cognitive dissonance. And so mm. for my undergrad, I was like, I want to get in an environment like I want to follow Jesus. I want to study scripture. I want to know the Bible, but I also want to be able to know that I don't have blinders on like on either side of my eyes. I want to know that I'm looking at things from a broad perspective. I want to know where I fit as an Adventist in the grand scheme of things. And so mm. I chose to study at like a transdenominational school because i wanted to really see if what i believed measured up i felt like i came out of that actually you know finishing that degree more adventist like more settled in being adventist mm. than i had been but uh you know it it was a journey and mm. it, it i think set me up really well for like studying theology at a master's level like subsequently within adventism you know going to andrews and and pursuing that so i mean that's my theological and musical background for you in a in a not so small nutshell but uh you know i, I worked at, while i was at andrews there was one place fellowship there um one of the on-campus churches and i was the music pastor there for a little bit um and at the same time you know i've been playing in bands i've got you know a couple bands that i'm in right now one gospel group one like progressive metal group and i'm working on my production skills pretty regularly trying to get better at that side of things. So my life is kind of 
perpetually a blend of like ministry and theology and music, you know, on one hand and the other. So yeah, that's fantastic, man. Fantastic. And, um, Toronto. So you're in Canada. Uh So you might actually be, I'm going through my memory bank here. You might be the first Canadian I've ever had on this podcast. Uh Trying to, uh, trying to think. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you, I've had some, I've had some Brits, um, (laughs) some Aussies, uh, definitely, definitely Americans. Yeah, I think you're the first Canadian, bro. If there's another Canadian, please forgive me. I I would uh, I would be um uh, I I would I would not be upset if you sent me an angry email for forget. But I'm pretty sure Max is the first. That's the point. <laughs> it's it's sometimes easy for Canadians to to like really blend in to the the Americans. Like this a lot true. of the time, yeah. like you, if we didn't disclaim, like, actually, no, like I'm a maple American, like people wouldn't know, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. That says, I remember seeing in a documentary one time, uh, this, there was a statement, this detective made like what, what walks like an American talks like an American, but isn't an American, a Canadian. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> they were, they were trying Canadians to, they were trying like to, um, yeah, they were they were trying to identify this um, this guy who was like um, they'd been chasing him. He'd been living in the desert, stealing stuff, and they finally caught him. And they were put him through all the systems and trying to f- fingerprints. And I was like, they, we can't find this guy's identity. Who the heck is he? And then eventually they were like, maybe he's Canadian. And it turned out he was. And you know they were able to find out who he was. <laughs> That's really so. Um, Man, well, welcome again, Max. I, I really appreciate having you here. Um, we have some heavy-duty stuff to explore. So I want to begin the podcast, as usual, whenever we're exploring heavy-duty stuff, for all those of you listening, to just invite you to explore with us and journey with us. I'm, I can't promise you that everything that you hear, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. There might be some things that deeply challenge you. Um, and there might be some things that in the end you might think, ah, oh, look, I, I, you know, I don't agree with that and, and that's okay, but I really want to just invite you to, uh, explore this and inhabit this conversation with us because whether or not we can agree on all the points isn't really the point. Uh, I think the point is that we can have the time to hear a very well articulated, uh, defense of the other side. And I think that's what's missing a lot of times in Avid's. We got a lot of DVDs and YouTube and sermons of people talking about music and worship within Adventism from one angle. Um, and honestly, Max, it wasn't until I saw your video series that I felt like here is a really well articulated, you know, uh, exploration of this topic from the other angle. Uh, so yeah, man, look, um, relax, enjoy, enjoy the conversations and uh, and inhabit this moment with us and see what you can learn, see what you can take away. Because again, this is way bigger than worship, what we're dealing with here. We're talking about things that are, are much more profound than that. And you'll see that as we go. Um, but once again, Max, I'm really excited to be exploring this with you because uh, you bring a wide array of insight into this historical, philosophical, theological, and as well as your experience as a musician. Um, so I'm really excited to explore this theme of reframing Adventist worship. Um, but I want to take a few steps back here as we begin, as we start our incredible journey through this valley of uh, yeah. of wonder and mystery. Um, let's let's step back a little bit, and 
I want to I want to begin with this question, and then I just I'm just I just want to let it flow from there. Um, from your perspective and your experience, why does Adventist worship or the Adventist worship conversation need to be reframed? Ooh, yeah. So I think part of it kind of goes along with what you were just describing. There is a really, really unbalanced way that information has been presented. And I mean that in, the, in a very numerical sense. You get a lot of pastors, a lot of uh, you know preachers, pastors adjacent, um, people within our denomination who have a lot of things to say about music, and I'm going to have to make sure I'm I'm careful about these distinctions when I'm talking about music and when I'm talking about worship because they're not exactly the same thing, but I mean there is a fixation on the music aspect of it, right? And there are tons of DVDs and tons of YouTube videos and all and people whose entire ministry careers seemingly are built on traveling and talking about this topic. Um, and so there is kind of this fairly large scale effort that has been made within our church to present a, a particular um, view of music. And I say that hesitantly because if you really interrogate the material, you find that they're not actually presenting the same viewpoint a lot of the time. Um, it's, a, it's a cluster of viewpoints that maybe do or maybe don't actually hold to the same ideas and values and principles or even data points. Um, it, it, and I think to the musically trained mind, it becomes very obvious when it's like, hey, you two guys are, you're on the same team, but you're not saying the same thing at all. Um, and so it, you know, it is a fantastic environment for misinformation to spread. Um, and I think that this is precisely what has come to represent the status quo within Adventism on this topic, just because, um, you know, the, you get a skewed set of voices, a biased set of voices that are able to dominate the conversation. They have the policymaking power to dominate the conversation. They're able, you know, it, these are the people who have been sitting in GC meetings since like the 70s and like defining denominational policy, creating the environment that younger generations of church musicians grow up into. And so a lot of the voices that would be, you know, prone to object and say, hey, I'm not entirely sure that this is sola scriptura-ing as much as it needs to. A lot of those voices are really are put in a position where they don't have the power to actually say anything. And so for me, um, it, one of the things I've always said is that people talk about the Adventist worship debate, but my thing is, can you actually have a debate when there's only one and a half sides? where one side is saying, this is my position, and these are the reasons I believe it. And the other side's only thing is, can you please listen to me? Right? That, that, that's not an argument. But, but I have something to say isn't an argument. Right? And, and interestingly, I find that people who have either been arguing, not either, who have tended to be arguing somewhat on the more progressive side of this conversation, very often, it's more of a can't we just get along or like, oh, is it really that important? Like dismissing the conversation entirely and saying like, oh, well, you guys on the more traditionalist side, like you shouldn't deem it that important because it's not that important. 
which interestingly kind of backfires because then if someone you know, a young musician who's passionate wants to actually treat the issue with importance, with some type of gravity, it undercuts that as well, right? Because it's supposed to be like, oh, it's not that deep, just suck it up and sing the hymns, right? And, and it's like, well, sure, but that's not an argument, right? So it, there is, there hasn't actually been a debate, because it's been one and a half sides. So I am of the opinion that it's really time for musically and theologically informed Adventists, young Adventist musicians who think scripturally and theologically to stand up and say, wrong is wrong, right? Unfactual, counterfactual is counterfactual. And so, you know, I think that's really the gist of it and the heart of it when you really examine the issue. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Thank you for, thank you for laying that out, bro. That's, and, and I agree with you, man. I think, um, <clears throat> and like, and even, even for, for, for anyone who's listening to this series, uh, as we go along, who finds uh, alternative perspective uncomfortable, um, and, and maybe you will, I would, I would argue and say, I think it, I think that that's okay. I think we need that because we are oversaturated with one side of the story and there's a danger to telling a singular story and a singular narrative. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure there's a TED talk called that this, the danger of the singular narrative or something like that. So, um, you know, I, there's a, there's a danger to that and, and we can, we can get caught in an echo chamber and begin to assume that certain things are true when they're not true. And I'll tell you what was a really shocking experience. And I think maybe we can go into this from, from, from here was really a shocking experience to me was, a lot of the arguments that I grew up hearing against any kind of music that wasn't hymns, right? Um, a lot of the, I was deeply shocked to find that those, like, I always thought that those were just like Adventist arguments, you know, like Adventists have been reading their Bible and they've come up with these arguments to say this style of music's not good and that instrument's not good. And I didn't necessarily fully agree with all of them, but I always just felt like this is an Adventist conversation that, and, and maybe some conservative Christians in other denominations, but that's pretty much where it's come from and, and where it's emerged from. Man, you can imagine my shock when I found the same exact arguments being made by the Reich Music Hammer, which was the, the, the Nazi Ministry of Music. Um, in in their fight to get rid of any music in in Germany that had African composition, and I was like, wait a minute. And then I discovered that these arguments go way deeper. They're, they're not biblical theological arguments. They originated in race wars, and then we've taken a lot of these ideas and baptized them. And I, and I think that's the danger with the singular narrative is then you can grow up hearing these arguments not knowing where they actually come from and what they're actually rooted in, and you embrace them as normative and you embrace them as, you know, this is, this is the right thing. Um, and, and this is biblical, not realizing actually those are political ideas that have been baptized in theological jargon to present a certain a certain perception. Um, and so, yeah, like I think having the other side of the story come in and say, let's pull back on this a little bit and find a, and find a center point is deeply, deeply important. Um, yeah. So I just opened up a huge can there. <laughs> you minutes the Reich like, music. So the Nazis, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. this is about Nazis now. <laughs> yeah. well let's let's yeah look let's explore that because um obviously like i said this conversation undercuts it's undercut by 
a, a much deeper and more ancient conversation than yeah. should we sing Chris Tomlin during worship, right? It's 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 way older than that, and it's got its roots in 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 the culture wars and the race wars. Can you walk walk us through that a little bit? If that's if that's a, a spot you'd like to hit on, and then we can sure. go from there. But yeah. I, I think maybe a good access point to this too for people who are, you know, the, the biblically literate crowd is to say like, okay, how, how long has the church been fighting about how they conduct themselves during worship on the basis of culture? And you, and you realize you're like, oh, dang, like acts, you know, like as when it came down to integrating Gentiles into the church, it, it suddenly became a huge discussion. They had to have a council in Acts 15 in Jerusalem, right? To say like, what do we do with some of these cultural practices as Gentiles are coming into the church that they're not our ethnic group, uh, but somehow God is, is bringing them into the fold as well. So how, how can we be inclusive and, and what are some things that we can't move on? What are some areas where we, we can't compromise? But what are some areas where we can say, like, you guys have the freedom to be different? And and you, when you realize that, you're like, oh, this church has, had, has been dealing with this forever. Like, this, this is a 2,000-year-old issue. And, you know, some of the people who were present at that council, like Peter himself, would go on in the book of Galatians to, I guess, you know, unlearn some of the lessons God had taught him. You know, we, we have this scene in, I hope I'm getting my timeline right there, because I, I sometimes I struggle to place Galatians in the, the early church narrative. But we know from like Paul's testimony that at one point, Peter's like, I'm not going to sit with these Gentiles at the table to eat with them, because like, I just I don't want to offend the, the more hard line, like Judaic leaning Christians. And Paul has to call them out and be like, hey, if you're like, how, how can you cut off fellowship from fellow believers? There is no distinction, Jew or Gentile, in Christ. And, you know, Galatians, we see Paul go hard for that. And if we don't make the, I mean, we make everything about soteriology sometimes, and we, we only see the, the, like, law versus grace conversation or whatever. But if we don't see the, the ethnic conversation in Galatians and in Acts and in so many other parts of the New Testament that, that is addressing culture and how you integrate a, a, a multicultural church environment without theological compromise and also without like harsh, unnecessary limitations. If, if, we, if we don't see that, then we're missing what the scriptures are saying to us. So I think that that is really an important place to start. Um, if people aren't able to wrap their minds around right around like right this this gospel and this church thing is god's vision for a unified human family a, a group of people consisting of all people in full expression of who they are um, you know outside of like maybe things that might be contrary to god's will but like in everything that is acceptable to god it's a full expression of who these people are revelation pictures the worship of God in the new creation as like every tribe, every tongue, every kindred and people. And apparent, uh, assumedly, that means they are identifiable as such. Assumedly, it means that like the new creation and the new birth and resurrection life and all of these things don't erase the signifiers of cultural heritage, right? We yeah, are recognizable yeah. as being from the backgrounds we are from. And I think that that is 
important for us to understand. If we don't start with that lens, then I don't, I don't know how people can think biblically about this topic. So that is now, obviously that's not like the musical history. That's more the theological history, but I think it is like, I do want this to be, you know, scripturally based. Right. So. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. And, and I love that, bro. And uh, I think, I think this is where we begin to unravel um, a lot of the, the the deeply uncomfortable elements that underlie this conversation. Again, music emerges as a superficial, um, almost icon uh, or representation rather of issues that are significantly deeper that cut to the very core of what it yeah. means to be a follower of Jesus. And that in Jesus, what we have, you know, if, if we go back to the Old Testament, to Genesis um, chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, where you have this sense in which God splits the nations of the earth and scatters them over the earth. And then he starts over with this random guy named Abram, and he creates a whole new nation out of him. And then we get to Deuteronomy 32, and we find that there's this language of Babel in Deuteronomy 32 about the nations being scattered. And then it brings up this idea that these nations are under the authority of false gods, right? The, yes. the idolatry and, and, the, and, you know, the fallen angels who are leading these nations. And so there's this, you get this picture that God has scattered the nations into the earth after the fall of Babel. Um, and he's created this whole new nation and his people. But then you see repeated hints all throughout, which culminates in Jesus, that the gospel plan is to bring all those nations back into one new humanity and jesus is the father of that new humanity and one new society a new civilization a new kingdom a new a new people and that when these people come from the nations that in in jesus which is essentially the church this new family is going to reclaim the 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 nations that have been you know splintered over the earth is going to reclaim them into one humanity and that's a deep, deep, deep part of the gospel. Like if you delete that, you delete a huge part of what the restoration narrative of scripture is. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think here is where the conversation gets hairy for a lot of people, because when the nations come into this new humanity, into this new civilization, he, here is, let me, let me, let me tell a story. I think it'll make this, this point I'm trying to make a little bit easier. When I was growing up, I remember, um, I remember asking my mother, right? I'm Puerto Rican. Uh, my, my whole family is from, from the island of Puerto Rico. And um, I'm a Jersey boy. You know, I wasn't born there. So, I, I, you know, I can't claim, you know, the island. But uh, that's my heritage. And I remember one day I, I asked my mother, I said, hey, why is it that when we go to church, we don't worship with the music of our island? We, we sing songs wow. that were written by Caucasians um, a very long time ago, right? Like, why don't we worship with the music of our island? And I was probably about 16 or 17 at the time, and her response to me was, um, well, because when you give your life to Jesus, you leave your culture behind for his. And I was like, okay. All right, I suppose I can dig that. And I didn't think about it much more until I got older and I kept thinking about this conversation. And one day it just kind of hit me like, 
well, who determines what Jesus' culture looks like? Because he never explained it. Like, I'm reading my Bible, and he never says, my culture, we wear our clothes like this, and we cut our hair like that, and we play our instruments like this. And, you know, like, right. and, and it started to hit me, like, the people who get to claim what Jesus' culture looks like are the people who are at the top of the totem pole in society. The, right. the the people who have the power right the, the 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 cultural sort of elites if if you may um and i started to really wrestle with that and think well like there was never ever like i'm reading the whole bible like an angel has never come down from heaven and said Jesus only likes four four time signature. So make sure, you know, like, and he doesn't like those instruments, right? Like all worship is cultural. And then I started to really wrestle with this idea. Like if all worship is cultural, what gives one culture the right to homogenize all other cultures into it and erase their identity and expression? Almost as if to say our expression is the only one God likes. That doesn't seem biblical to me that doesn't seem gospel that doesn't seem like the gathering of all the nations into a new humanity that sound that just sounds like colonialism so <laughs> um so yeah i think this is where it gets challenging and i want to unpack this a little bit like how did we get to this point what is this idea built on where we sort of homogenize and yeah anyways yeah i think well, you get I what mean, i'm trying to ask is, <laughs> no I, I i'm totally with you on that and it it raises uh, an interesting thought for me which is that you know god the eternal son definitely a cultureless being you know uh, unless you can think of the life of the godhead as a culture sure maybe the man jesus christ yeshua hamashiach right he definitely had a culture Absolutely. definitely most certainly had a culture but that that fact should immediately challenge us because we have to think to ourselves oh he was a man of the ancient mediterranean in like Roman occupied Palestine, a Judean, a man of what we would consider today the Middle East, quote unquote. And so, wait a minute, our hymns don't sound like the music that comes from that part of the world at all. Our hymns are not played typically on the instruments that are mentioned in the Bible at all. So somehow we've gotten to a point where we are able to culturally retroject and say, you know, to the point that your mom made all those years ago, well, when you follow Jesus, you leave your culture behind for his. Well, interestingly, if that's the case, then no, we haven't, because we're not taking yeah. our cues for, we're not taking our cues from Judaism. We're not taking our cues from, uh, you know, we're not, we're not finding our ethnomusicologists and saying like, hey, what can you tell us about like uh, the overall style of like cultural Palestinian music, right? We're not, we're not saying like, can you introduce us to music in the Arab world, right? And, and, and it should be so glaringly obvious to us that like, this is where the Bible came from. And like, even today, a lot of the instruments that are used in the region are fairly ancient. Um, like we're, we're not actually engaged at all with the culture that Jesus would have humanly speaking identified with. So what has happened on the in-between to cause us to retroject and say this Anglo-American culture and, you know, vaguely, broadly Western and Northern European cultural framework, how has that become normative over against everything else? And why are we able to like, you know, basically anachronistically take this like 
medieval choir music and medieval orchestral music and retroject it into the ancient Near East as if it was somehow there or God's plan all along. If, mm. if you're able to, to make that mental leap, you, you realize like, oh, I might be thinking about the history of sacred music in a completely inaccurate, like anachronous way. And I think maybe to, to jump back onto a point you'd made earlier about the, you know, the Third Reich and their music policies and how that relates to, I don't know, Judaism. Um, it's worth talking about, I mean, how that played out. So um, recently, like within the last year or so, I would actually say right around last summer, um, when, when the Black Lives Matter protests were kind of in full swing, um, there was a reckoning. I mean, there was a reckoning across multiple disciplines and fields of inquiry, right? Uh, with regards to racial justice and obviously, you know, most people who have been culturally attuned were, were you know, tuned into that conversation. But within the sphere of music academia, there was a bit of an uproar. Um, just a little while earlier, back in like late 2019, I believe, uh, there was a music professor named Philip Ewell, Dr. Philip Ewell, who gave a lecture on essentially white supremacy and the history of music theory in the West and, and the way that that affects music education. Um, Adam Neely, if, for those of you who know him, he's a pretty well-known music YouTuber, a bass player, jazz musician. He did a pretty extensive video covering this, interviewed Dr. Ewell himself. Basically, a lot of the classical music world began, you know, younger members of it anyhow, began to re-examine the history of Western art music, quote unquote, um, Western music education, and kind of uncovering some, some difficult and, and challenging things. So tying some of these threads together. Um, back in the late 19th century and early 20th century in Germany, um, there was a thinker by the name of Heinrich Schenker, who was the founder of a, an approach to music theory and, and music theory analysis called Schenkerian analysis, obviously taking after his name. Schenker was, uh, you know, nationally speaking, a German. Um, like that's where he was from. And, but ethnically, interestingly, he was also Jewish. Um, he, had, he had Jewish heritage. And so that's, that's already an interesting dynamic when you think late 19th century and early 20th century in Germany. But what he represented was kind of the crystallization of a, a line of thought that had been kind of like brewing for a while, which was this push for, I mean, German nationalism, um, definitely a push to say like our culture is like supreme and preeminent above all others. And as evidence of that, look at all of these great musical composers that have come from our midst, right? And of course, like the Germans, they do have a proud musical history, Bach, Beethoven, just so many others, right? That like, yeah, they were good at classical music, like no ifs, ands, or buts, no doubts about it. But what that led to was this idea of a certain type of genius, so-called, that could only arise among certain more civilized people groups, right? Um, now, obviously, at some level, when Schenker is talking about resolving from the, the five chord to the one chord in, you know, a piece of music, like, are, are we saying that like G to C is racist? No, that's, that's ridiculous, right? 
but it it came with his way of thinking about music hierarchically and how he metaphorically connected that to his views of people right he viewed the world in hierarchical terms he had expressly said things like he didn't believe black people could govern themselves right like these these are the kinds of ideas that are like floating around in his head and representatively also are kind of in the the cultural uh, zeitgeist of germany at this point in time i mean we know where history is headed for this nation right so it, it's not that much of a mental leap to be like oh yeah you know there was some supremacist thinking going on here. But essentially, um, this is part of a larger phenomenon, a larger conversation where the white world at large has this perception of itself as being kind of the anchor of a, a civilized world. And that any other culture is at so, in, in some way operating at a less optimal level of quote unquote civilization uh, intellect and so on, right? So kind of simultaneously, you know, you, you pull away from Europe for a second and you look at, you know, the United States of America as kind of like the thing you always come back to when you talk about systemic racism, right? Um, there are articles that you can find, things that you can pull up from journals and newspapers all over the place where people are disparaging the tradition of African-American music, Black American music, saying that it's depraved, saying that it is, you know, bad for various reasons. I mean, a lot of these arguments where people are saying like, oh, no, 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 Th this music is, it it's bad for your health. It's scientifically bad for you. A lot of it is is not science. It's racism excusing itself with pseudoscientific language. Right. Um, one thing I'll always say to people, you know, as, as the metal guy, I'll just be like, well, why do you think metal accrued this this uh, association with Satan? Obviously, there were artists who who leaned into it. Of course, that no one denies that. Right. Obviously, there were artists who leaned into it. But a big part of it was that people already considered rock music before it demonic. Well, why did people consider rock music demonic? Well, there were artists who leaned into it, but before rock music, the music that it came from, the blues, was already considered demonic. Oh, interesting. Well, why was the blues considered demonic? Well, the blues came from earlier forms of music, including traditional Black American folk music, which was already considered demonic. Like, it's just this, the further back you go, it's like, it was already considered demonic. Well, why was the traditional folk music of Black Americans considered demonic? Because racist white people considered them degenerate, racist white people considered them culturally unevolved, backwards, and associated African spirituality and African culture with the occult and with Satan, right? So this is something that is projected onto minority communities by uh, people with a, a deeply ingrained racist worldview right? A lot of the language of stuff that you get from various Christian groups and, and, you know, whatever you might find among like white society in the early 20th century is based in a perception that like people of color are somehow just more in tune with spiritual evil and more susceptible to it. Um, and so it's, it's not uncommon to see even today within Adventism, 
arguments that say like, well, this kind of music is bad because ultimately it comes from Africans and it comes from African paganism and animism. And, you know, it is this weird superstitious and, and very, you know, false belief that uh, the, the spirits can somehow inhabit the music style the notes themselves or like that the, the the evil spirits are like automatically associated with certain rhythmic patterns and and so on um n- none of this can really be demonstrated by science certainly doesn't measure up to like scrutiny in music theory but like at the end of the day you have to look at the history and and say like well where does this line of thinking start and what motivates this line of thinking and really what it comes down to is it's like oh this was the the logic of some deeply racist people who had never thought to to reconsider or question their presuppositions, um, and just just like not not to belabor this point for too long, but something that we don't necessarily always get, and this is you know something that um, various like music theorists that I, I listen to have articulated. Back in the day, in the days of Beethoven, in the days of Bach the best music was something new, right? The best music was, bro, I, I've heard that song like 50 times, show me something new. Like you, you haven't come up with a new track in the last little while, right? Like people, that's how people typically, like they want to hear something new and exciting. But when there was the formation of what we consider the classical canon, it's this informal list-ish, list adjacent, this general sense of like, this is the stuff that's worthy of remembering. This is the stuff that's worthy of being celebrated over a long period of time. The, the mindset, I mean, there was a lot of German scholars involved in this, but essentially when you, when these Europeans wanted to create a sense of like, this is our legacy, our greatness, they skewed their their representation of things to say like what is true music what is like the height of human accomplishment in music is what this very select group of 18th century european composers did that is music theory now that is what true art is everything must now be measured up to this and it it switched the western world's perception of what qualifies as good music from new exciting music I haven't heard before to what did the great masters do back in the day 100 years ago and and it, it completely flipped the the prioritization to the point I mean this is more conjectural on my part but when I look at like you know significantly white dominated music genres today I can speak to this as a rock music and metal fan a lot of us get stuck in the past and just say like, oh, nothing will ever measure up to Led Zeppelin, Queen, Metallica, pick whichever era of oldies you love the most. That's the best thing. Conversely, you look, you know, interestingly at like hip hop and it's like, you know, a non-white genre typically, I mean, rock is a black genre, but it has been heavily whitewashed, but like hip hop is like truly and enduringly a black genre. And the orientation in hip hop is overwhelmingly towards that which is new, to that which is innovative, to that which is, you know, fresh off the press. Um, and I, I think that there is a cultural assumption that underlies that. On the one hand, a group of people that says, like, we must idealize the past, romanticize the past, long for a time when things were the way we wanted it to be. Gee, I wonder what advantages we had back then that we're not 
fully disclosing in the conversation, right? Wink, wink, hint, hint, versus a group of people that's saying we are pushing forward. We we haven't yet arrived at the best that things could be, right? Those are two completely different attitudes towards history, right? That's not an attitude towards just music. That's an attitude towards history and, and civilization. But I think when you examine that, you realize like, oh, wow, these dispositions will shape how we think about how we should worship, how we should sing, how or yeah. if we should dance, et cetera. So that's kind of like the Absolutely. long spiel, um, you know, pardon the critical race theory. But uh, <laughs> well, look, I, I think I think this is this is precisely what what I'm seeing as the deeper level, right? Mm -hmm. The deeper reality that underlies this tension. Um, because so long as we believe and we practice the rhythms and patterns and postures and habits of a worldview that assumes Anglo primacy, for example, yeah. or Eurocentric value structures are up here and everybody else is down here, right? Yeah. So long as we continue to engage or see the world that way, it severely impacts our ability to do mission. Yeah. And here's what I mean by that. Let's go back to the book of Acts where they had the Jerusalem Council. What was the point of the Jerusalem Council? The point of the Jerusalem Council, well, I mean, obviously one of the points of the Jerusalem Council was that, you know, should Gentiles be Jews before they can follow Jesus? Right. Right. Meaning, should they be circumcised and embrace these Jewish identifiers before they can become Christians? And the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council was no, right? Like, yeah. you do not have to be a Jew first before you can follow Jesus. You can follow Jesus from where you are as a yeah. Gentile. Here are some basic things to keep in mind that will align you as a, as, as a you know, Gentile culture, uh, align you with God's heart or God's rhythms or expectations. But they're very, very basic ideas. You don't have to become a Jew to be a follower right. of Jesus. And what I'm seeing today in Adventist mission, in Adventist evangelism, is we have this underlying worldview that is manifested in the music wars, right? The yep. Eurocentric worldview, the Anglo primacy worldview, the idea that we must measure everything against whiteness to determine yep. if it's good enough. Right. And what we're essentially telling millennials and Zeds post-church cultures, secular cultures, post-modern cultures, meta-modern cultures, um, which are deeply impacted by, you know, uh, multiculturalism as well and the influx of migration and, you know, the, the, the mingling of, of, of different cultural expressions. What we're essentially telling them is before you follow Jesus, you must first become a 1950s white guy or gal from the suburbs in America. And when you can learn to dress like that and sing like that and only listen to music that was normative at that time, then you can be considered holy and follow yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And we communicate that not necessarily in our language. We're not telling people that. But it's the rhythms and the moods that we create in our communities of faith that give that off to people. So I'll give you a quick example. Um, then we can, we can move on to some other points because I know there's – a lot more points you want to explore here. So um, yeah. I have a friend of mine that I've been discipling for two years now. He's a bona fide secular Aussie guy. 
Um, he started attending a traditional church that I was pastoring some years ago because he had been to rehab and there was a former Adventist at that rehab. And when he got out, he wanted to reconnect with an Adventist church. So he came to this church that I was pastoring and he told his friend, who's like the, the super secular guy who'd never been to church before, come along. So he came along and we had a seekers class and he really enjoyed the seekers class and he came to church as well a few times. And then I noticed he never stayed for church again. He would come for seekers class and then he would hightail it. Mm -hmm. So I asked him one day, I said, hey, um, why don't you stay for main service? I, I, I kind of already knew, but I just wanted to hear him say it. <laughs> it's like, why don't you stay for the main service? You know, you come for seekers class, stay for main service too. And he said to me, no lie, um, he said to me, look, um, I know I need God in my life. I know I do. Like my life's a mess. I know I need God in my life and I want God in my life. But I'll tell you this, if God expects me to dress like those people and sing those songs, forget about it. It's not happening. Right. And that was his answer. And like, I respected him because I knew exactly what I knew he was going to say it before he said it. So I was like, yeah. but he's looking at this, at this cultural mood within our church service, within our church community. He's looking at this cultural mood that's so out of touch with anything that's even remotely real today. It's like a different universe. You step into this different little universe when you come to church right. and you go back to like the real world. Capsule. Yeah, yeah, time capsule. He's looking at this and he's looking at this way people dress and it's just like so phony. This is how he interprets it. And this music and the language in the songs that's like super ancient that he doesn't understand and the right. melody of the songs that are just bizarre. And he's like, man, if that's what God expects, I'm never going to fit that script. You know, right. now some people would look at that and say, oh, he wasn't serious about his walk with God. Not true. Two years later. I'm still discipling him. He's still, he's fighting one of the most overwhelmingly difficult battles I've ever seen any human being fight against the traumas and addictions that he's, he's had in his life. Um, and he is consistently showing up to fight that fight and to grow in his faith. This is not a guy who is blasé about his walk with God. He just couldn't understand why God would want him to embrace a cultural expression that was so foreign to him and nobody in the church told him you must but the mood within the church yeah. creates that script it's like if you want to be one of us you have to match this script and so this is what i mean like when we talk about the music wars the issues that underlie the music wars are actually issues that deeply affect our ability to engage young people and unchurched people in, in, in missionally effective ways. And unless we deconstruct these things and we hold them up to scrutiny with scripture and we come out the other side with a more balanced Jesus-centered vision, I think we are going to continue to, to, to lose missional opportunities that are right in our in our face which is which is why i love exploring this and parsing this and 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 looking at what's really underlying a lot of these debates you know we we yeah. talk about it like it's a conversation about holiness but really it's a conversation about white supremacy that's fundamentally what it is i mean interestingly i think i i take your point i do think interestingly that it is a conversation about holiness but it's a conversation about holiness that has been taken from the completely wrong uh yes angle um yeah and to start with white supremacy is unholy mm -hmm. right and 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 but this is this is hmm, this is where it becomes dangerous this is where it becomes uh, well 
not dangerous to me. I'm fine going here. I, I have no problem going here. But it becomes provocative because we've spent so long as a church hearing this conversation presented in such a way where it's like, stay away from that worldly music, stay away from those unholy influences. And it's been a lot of young musicians and creatives having to adopt an apologetic defensive Mm. position and say like, oh, Mm. I'm so sorry, I gave you the impression of being unsanctified or whatever. But this goes back to my one and a half sides of the argument thing it's a whole other beast entirely for young Adventists to turn around and be like, sorry, were you talking about unholiness? Because actually it's you. (laughs) And that can sound very accusatory, but like, Mm. this is, this is the problem. And this is something that's going to come up again, but you know, as a, as a maybe foreshadowing of one of my later points that I think may be a little incendiary. Um, Oh, my train of thought. How how do do I express this nicely, but also firmly? Um, The church has turned into the status quo unwarranted, unfiltered criticism of its own members and the demonization of its own members. People will say to me sometimes, like, Max, why are you criticizing the church? Who told you it was okay to criticize the church? I'm like, hey, 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 hey. (laughs) the church that's me i'm the church you're the church we're we're i'm just as much the church as like the administrative structure but Mm. pastors throughout my whole life have made it very clear that it's okay for them to criticize me as much as they want Mm. with no consequence and to demonize my friends and say that they are influenced by the devil so Mm. like when it comes down to saying is this a conversation about unholiness i you know, I want to say like, well, sorry, but if this is going to be a conversation with two actual sides, not one and a half, but two actual sides, we're going to have to be ready to, to do the really hard work of saying like, I'm sorry, traditionalists, your Hmm. point of view is unholy and unsanctified. Like you are perpetuating a form of evil. So, and that, and that can be very uncomfortable because Mm. all of a sudden a side that has never had to deal with that kind of like accusation before will be like that. When you say that, that feels awful. Like that makes me feel gross inside that you would insinuate that about me. Right. And I'm like, Hey, guess what? I was like a teenager in the faith, like recently baptized, when people decided it was okay to tell me, Max, you're a devil worshiper. You are in league with the, you worship Satan, Max. Like I've heard, I've, people have actually said that to me, right? Some of them dead serious, some of them kind of joking, but it, it doesn't, when it comes from a fellow believer, it, it like joking doesn't take the sting out of it, right? It's like, I love Jesus. Like, how are you going to tell me that I'm in league with Satan, you know? And so, you know, it is absolutely a conversation about oh, my piano's on. <laughs> uh, it is absolutely <laughs> a, uh, a conversation about holiness. So I, yeah, I just wanted yeah. to throw that out there. No, I, 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 man, I totally, totally agree with you. Absolutely. And, you know, just to, just to, just to comment, maybe as we, as we wrap this point up, just to comment on, on, on this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. 2015, and um, I, I don't have the latest edition before me. 
um, although it's it's not much different. Uh, but the church manual, right? So Seventh-day Adventist church manual. Um, I, the section on music I, is something that I find really bizarre. Mm. Um, obviously, it starts with uh, Ellen White quote, and uh, we will actually talk about that. That's going to be yep. coming up. Um, Ellen White, uh, parsing Ellen White's perspective. Mm-hmm. But let me just read this real quick and, 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 and share why I find this so disconcerting, not only myself, but a lot of my peers um, and you know, millennials and Zeds, et cetera. Um, so it, it, it goes on, it says under the section of music, uh, music is one of the highest arts. Good music uh, not only gives us pleasure, but elevates our minds and cultivates our finest qualities. God often has used spiritual songs to touch the heart of sinners and lead to repentance. On the contrary, the bass music breaks down morality and draws us away from our relationship with God. Um, that's the first paragraph. I'll read one more. So here's the thing that I find deeply uncomfortable here. It, it talks about what good music does. It doesn't define good music. It never says, this is what good music is. It's classical. It's hymns. It, it just doesn't say. It's yeah. very vague. It just says, good music does this. Um, and then it says, on the contrary, the based music breaks down morality and draws us away from our relationship with God. So it's contrasting good music with debased music. It never defines good music, but in the very next paragraph, it does go on to define debased music, which by the way, the term debased music comes uh, from the right music hammer. The right. idea that any music that was of African composition was degenerate because it came from a degenerate people. Right. Um, so the next paragraph then goes on to say, we should exercise great care in the choice of music in our homes, social gatherings, schools, and churches. Any melody partaking of the nature of jazz, rock, or related hybrid forms, or any language expressing foolish or trivial sentiments will be shunned. Um, so here's the thing. It doesn't define good music. It never tells us what good music is. Then it makes this statement about debased music, and it goes on to identify African styles of music yeah. with what debased music is is right um and again right out of the nazis playbook now i'm not saying that whoever wrote this is like a nazi in disguise that's not that's not the point what what i am saying is if we don't have the two conversations these ideas become normative we assume that they are just part of what it means to be a follower of jesus and and part of what it means to seek holiness in our musical stories Uh, without realizing that actually these ideas are rooted in the struggle for supremacy, which is a, which is a purely beastly struggle, right? Right. They're rooted in ideologies that are built around hate and power and the, the, um, dehumanization of the other and and i mean it goes way further back than the right music hammer i'm just using them as modern expression right it goes much further back than that um and and so the idea then or the ideology that undergirds this again and i'm not going to repeat everything point for point because i think i've already made that um the ideology if we don't contend with this and repent of this and seek to move forward in a way that is in harmony with Christ's new humanity, we will continue to have missional ineffectiveness when we are confronted with people who are different from us. Because that's essentially what we're seeing here. It's like if you are different from the standardized culture, Mm -hmm. um, then we dehumanize you. 
Yeah. And if you can, and, and, and this is maybe one more point, just <laughs> one no, of my greatest it. frustrations, greatest frustrations is when I hear someone say, oh, I go to a multicultural church. Ah, yes. And <clears throat> you go to this multicultural church and every song they sing is like uh, Anglo hymn. And right. that's not like, that's not multicultural. That's multicolored. Maybe. I don't know if that's a right. thing like <laughs> multicolored, but it's not yeah. multicultural. Like true multiculturalism would express itself with diversity. Um, so yeah, like these are the types of things that on the surface, it manifests as a perhaps arguably superficial worship or although superficial is an overstatement. I think it's, it's deeper than that, but um, perhaps on the surface, it can manifest as something that seems surface. Oh, we're fighting right. about music styles, but right. man, what is underneath, what is under the water of that iceberg, right? The hidden part is stuff. huge and deep and painful and fundamentally, as you said, unholy and unsanctified. And if we don't parse this, if we don't deconstruct this, if we don't bring this to the cross and say, God, undo these ideologies that we've normalized in our culture, I don't see how we'll ever be effective as a church at reaching people who are different from us. That's it for today, everyone. We are out of time, but if you tune in next week, you can hear part two of our conversation. This is going to continue for quite a few episodes, so make sure you keep tuning in. Like, share, subscribe, tell your friends about it, and uh, enjoy the journey along with us. In the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to do it yet, I invite you to go to the storychurchproject.com and check out the new Bible study guide, The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture. The second edition is now available, and this is a Bible study set that's been specifically designed for communicating the narrative of redemption, the story of Scripture, to millennials, Zeds, uh, post-church, unchurched, post-modern generations. Make sure you check that out. Get your hands on a copy, and I will catch you next week. Mm -hmm.